You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. My staff gives me such a bad time for how cool the music is. I'm so sorry. It's just... It's just, it's just an expression of my heart, you know, the coolness that dwells within. Uh, we are doing divine disruptions. Because it's such a busy season that we're heading into, we're looking at stories about how Jesus gets disrupted, gets interrupted, gets uh, people coming up to him. In fact, as I'm reading devotionally throughout the weeks, you know, every day I'm trying to read some scripture, it feels like almost every encounter is an inru- interruption. That Jesus is going about doing his ministry of trying to proclaim the word to the cities. And almost every story that we know is just somebody kind of bumping into Jesus as he's doing his mission and ministry to talk to him, to ask him for something, to, to need his grace and mercy, or to challenge him. And so almost any story can be a really helpful uh, way for us to understand how to deal with disruptions. But we're doing ours today. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to send them. I'm going to open the app now. We try to make this as much of a conversation rather than a monologue. And so feel free to send them. That's the number. It's just as easy as texting. If you've ever texted, uh, you can send it to this number. It'll be on the bottom of each slide. It's there. It's in your bulletin. Here's my story about interruptions from me. I don't even know if it fits the sermon very well, but I had to interrupt somebody this last week and it almost killed me because I just hate bothering people. The last thing I want to do in the whole world is be a bother to anyone. But last Sunday after church, I had to go to a retreat. Some leaders in our regional network were meeting. There was five of us. We were gathering together at a Christian retreat center down near Yosemite. And we gathered that night and we did our thing. We prayed mostly for a few hours for you all and for just all kinds of things going on in the world and for our work. And then that night I went back to my room and it was motel style. So our doors faced parking lots, right? And um, I had some papers to grade for Chico State. I had to grade all these papers. I did catch one AI paper. People have been asking me. I did catch one. Got them. Um, But I didn't get done grading papers until about 12.30 a.m. midnight. And then I went to go to sleep, and uh, what is the last thing you do before you go to sleep, everybody? you got to plug in your phone. you got a busy day the next day. You're going to need that. And I left my phone charger in the car, and so I decided I better run out to the car and grab it real quick. And it was raining. If you don't remember it last Sunday, but it rained a little bit. So I put on my vest and a really thin shirt and my little basketball shorts, and I trotted out to my van, grabbed my thing, came back to my door, and I did not have my room key. <laughs> It's a Christian retreat center. It's not a hotel or a motel. There's no one on staff on site. I thought I saw a conjoining door between my roommate and me. And so my, everything in me said, you got to wake her up. She's another pastor in Turlock. You got to wake her up. And I was just like, I can't. Just like, you can't. Ah. But the one thing that caused me to wake her up was that I'm preaching about interruptions And if I'm telling you to interrupt people and to be interruptible, I better be willing to interrupt some people. So thank you for the encouragement. 
are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses of you all having to come back to confess to you. So 12.30 a.m., I knocked on her door and woke her up, and everything in me was like, this is horrible. And I was just like, do we have a conjoining door? And she was like, what is happening? Where am I? What dimension is this? I was like, I locked myself out. The doors are not conjoining. They're just other linen doors. But we had a little fireside room that we were conferencing in, and our, our keys for our room opened that, and I said, and we had two keys. I said, can I just take yours, uh, extra one, and, which is kind of sketchy. In the middle of the night, some guy's like, can I have an extra room key to your room, woman? But she trusted me, handed me one, and I went and slept on a recliner for about four hours. Woke up with, I've never had a crick in my back so bad. Almost, but I was, it was either that or sleep in my car. So thank you for the encouragement of having to come here and talk to you about being interruptible and then having to, otherwise I would have just slept in my car. Actually, I almost would have just went home. I would have just drove four hours home, but all my clothes and phone and computer were locked away in my room and I didn't want to have to bother somebody to grab all that for me. So I interrupted everybody. Thank you for encouraging to do that. I got to sleep in a warm fireside room instead of my car for the evening. Interrupted a person. I was interrupting. I interrupted their sleep. Dead of sleep. We made it. We did it. I'm alive and well because of it. So thank you for doing that. We're talking about interruptions because it's a busy season, because you're going to have lots of interruptions, because you're going to need to interrupt people. You're going to be disrupted in the middle of your flow, grocery store, people coming to you, things happening. It's a big season. There's lots going on. And so we're asking, how did Jesus do it? What did he do? Can that give us any insight on how we can handle these kinds of things? If you got scriptures, would you turn with me to Luke 8? Or if you're using uh, the one in front of you in the seat, it is on page 789. This is a story about where Jesus gets interrupted and his interruption gets interrupted. He's doubly interrupted. 789. 789. On that page, if you're on my, with the same scripture as me, Left-hand column, Jesus heals two women. There's a little girl who dies. There's a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. She's been hemorrhaging blood. And uh, both of these are big deals. And so in the middle of one healing, he has to heal another person. It's a double disruption in the middle of this. All kinds of things going on in this story. You'll see the number 12 come up. I don't even have time to get into it. So if you want to text that to me, that'd be a great texting question, but let us get into this story for today, starting at verse 40. When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they had been waiting for him, the crowd. A man named Jairus, who was a synagogue leader, right, the leader of one of these Jewish church congregations, came and fell at Jesus' feet. Already radical that this leader of this congregation would come and fall at Jesus' feet. And he pleaded with Jesus to come to his house because his only daughter, a 12-year-old, was dying. As Jesus moved forward to go to his house, he faced smothering crowds. 
A woman was there who had been bleeding for 12 years. She had spent her entire livelihood on doctors, but no one could heal her. She came up behind Jesus and touched the hem of his clothes, and at once the bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When everyone denied it, Peter said, Master, there's a billion people right here. Why are you asking who's touching you? Which is a good question, Peter, for once. Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. When the woman saw that she couldn't escape notice, she came trembling and fell before him. And in front of everyone, she explained why she had touched him and how she'd been immediately healed. And Jesus looks at her and says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from, from Jairus' house and he said, your daughter has already died. Don't bother the teacher any longer. When Jesus heard this, he responded, don't be afraid. Just keep trusting or have faith. She will be healed. When he came to the house, he didn't allow anyone to enter except Peter, James, and John, his three most trusted apostles, and the child's father and mother, they were all crying and mourning for her, but Jesus said, don't cry, she isn't dead, she's only sleeping. They laughed at him because they knew that she was dead. Taking the little girl's hand, Jesus called out to her child, get up. Her life returned, and she got up at once, and he directed them to give her something to eat, and her parents were beside themselves with joy, but he ordered them to tell no one what happened, the word of God for the people of God for today. Here ends the reading. My favorite detail is that as soon as she comes back to life, she's got to eat. I just love it. I don't understand it. I mean, I got a guess. I got a couple of guesses, but it's just my favorite. He's like, this girl needs some food. And I'm like, Jesus sees me. Jesus sees me. As always, we do head, heart, hands here at the table. Something for us to know, feel, and do so we have a holistic faith that runs to us through us and out into the world information transformation action and so i always ask the questions what does god want us to know after we read that what's the feeling language or the experience language because if it's just information it's a philosophy but we don't believe christianity is just a philosophy we believe that it's salvation so how does it affect us what are we supposed to do with it what does God want us to know in the theme of disruption, in the theme of Jesus being doubly interrupted? Here is what this story is about. The power of healing is greater than the pollution of humans. The power of healing from Jesus is greater than the pollution of any humans. What do I mean by this? Bleeding and dead people were off limits for Jewish people, ceremonially unclean. If you touched a person who was bleeding, if you touched a person who was dead, you became unclean. You couldn't go to the temple and worship God. That person was unclean. Everything's unclean. And yet when Jesus touches these ceremonially, ceremonially unclean things, he doesn't get defiled. He heals. And there's something we can learn from them that there's no one really beneath us that's going to make our life defiled or polluted, that we don't have to be afraid of that kind of stuff. Right? We see this woman. Uh, she'd been bleeding for 12 years. Nonstop, she is 
unclean in her society. She's been outcast from her society. She's not allowed to touch anyone in her society. Um, she is broke. She spent every dime she had trying to fix this. So she's poor. She's unclean. She's outside of her community. And then there was the girl who was dead, literally outside her community, uh, dead. We know that this is true from the Old Testament. If you like to read your Old Testament, Leviticus 25 and Numbers 19, it straight up has whole passages about this. If there's a woman who's bleeding for many days, she shall be unclean, and anyone who touches these people will be unclean. It's there. It's law for the Jewish people, not for you. For the Jewish people, this was their law. Anything that woman touched, like a chair or a table or the house or anything unclean, the person who touches a dead body of any human will be unclean for a whole week. Uncleanness means that you cannot be with your people and you cannot be in God's temple. You are, there's something broken about you, defiled about you, polluted about you that makes you unable to have community and to be connected to God. And Jesus walks in and is touched and touches both of these ceremonially unclean people and he doesn't get defiled. He heals. That's how powerful he is. That's how powerful he makes you. No longer do you get unclean from dealing with people who are suffering, who are going through physically, uh, physical uh, ailments. You have this power too because Christ is in you. You don't get defiled or polluted because someone is going through something and they get close to you. You know what it reminds me of? Who's this? Did it click? There it is. Princess Di, Princess Diana, she almost single-handedly changed the way that we viewed people who had HIV. The late 80s, early 90s, kids, if you weren't there, it was a scary time. There was stuff, news, we didn't know what to do. We didn't know what was going on. It was a relatively new thing, and it pretty much killed everybody who got it. And these people were ostracized from communities. And here was the princess of the UK, next in line to be queen if she would have made it and stayed together. They could have stayed together in their relationship. She created a whole wing of a hospital for folks with HIV. And then they would post all these pictures of her touching, hugging children born with HIV almost single-handedly changed the perception of people who were suffering from this disease and illness just by her willingness to be present and to be physical and to connect with people who were going through it. She has this quote, HIV does not make people dangerous to know. You can shake their hands. You can give them a hug. Heaven knows they need it. What's more, you can share their homes, their workplaces, playgrounds, toys. She made it her mission and for that moment, it changed perception in the world about how we navigate people who are suffering from this disease and illness. There's no one, Jesus teaches us, now in Christ who's beneath us that is undeserving of our attention. No human condition disqualifies someone from our presence 
nothing out because nothing outside of you can defile you. You are the salt and light of the earth, Jesus says. There's nothing that can accidentally touch you that makes you less worthy to be in God's presence or to be in God's community. That's just no longer the reality for us who are in Christ. That's one of the benefits we believe Christ has imparted into the world and to us. Some religious communities still believe that you can be defiled and then therefore need to be separated from God and God's community. Not us. It's not we believe. You are not defiled, polluted, broken. It's no human condition that makes you unworthy of God's presence. So that's what God wants you to know about disruptions. Jesus doesn't get defiled. He heals people who have been going through this brokenness. What does God want us to experience? People are texting. I got three? Yeah! What does God want us to feel or experience in the midst of this story, in the midst of this theme about disruption? God wants you to fight fear with faith, with hope, with community. I want you to fight fear with faith. Because a lot of times interruptions happen and there's fear involved. People are anxious. People are worried about the future, about what's going to happen. I even think about this with my own kids. If glass or a cup gets broken, there's fear. It's an interruption into our life and day. And immediately there's fear, right? And I have a choice about how to respond. I can respond angrily, which I do sometimes. So sorry. Or <laughs> reinforce with faith and hope and community. But that interruption does not mean that they are less worthy of love or connection or God's presence in their life. The whole chapter, chapter 8, is about fighting faith, fighting fear with faith. The antidote to fear is faith. But in our passage, we see it in a couple places. Jesus says, Jesus says, who touched me? Someone touched me. And they're like, there's crowds everywhere. And the woman came trembling. And Jesus says, your faith has healed you. The, 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 someone from Jairus' house comes to him and says, hey, your daughter's already dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And Jesus heard this and he said, don't, don't be afraid. Trust. Have faith. Gives them hope. Gives them hope. And then I also said, he adds community. When faced with fearful interruptions, Jesus encourages faith, hope, and community. Faith we know as the word is trust. Faith we know as the word is trust. Sometimes we think of faith, we mean belief, but it really more accurately is defined as trust. But where do we see community? When he looks at this woman who's been ostracized from her community for 12 years because she's poor and because she's unclean, Jesus' first word to her is daughter. This is a reconciling act. He's restoring her in front of the entire crowd, which is why I believe Jesus called her to the mat in the middle of everyone. Who touched me? And she had to come in front of everyone and explain what happened because Jesus wants to restore her back to her community because one of the antidotes of fear is togetherness. That's what I think is going on with the food 
part of that little girl who died and was raised back to life. Jesus says, get her some food because food was community. You don't eat alone in most cultures. Only in our culture are we scarfing down Burger King in our cars right before dinner, right before you're heading over to someone's house because you don't know if you like their food or not. So you're like, I better just get some Burger King in me real quick. You're laughing because you know what I'm talking about. So he says, get her some food because he's restoring her back to the community. And because if she's eating, she's not a ghost. She's a physical body, right? And so get her some food so that the whole community who knew she was dead, the text says, will now know she's alive and she'll be restored back to what's going on. Jesus fights fear with faith, with hope, and with community. And, and that's a model for us. This is a model for us. Infuse fearful interruptions with faith hope, and community. From one of my favorite shows, Ted Lasso, that he gives one of these halftime speeches. He's a soccer player, if you'd, soccer coach. I like the show because he's very wholesome. The, his whole deal is that he was an American football coach for college, and they hired him to be a soccer coach in England. He doesn't know anything about soccer. Um, he shows up, and it's all about team building and connection. And... He has a sign in the back that he keeps up there, and it's, it's for three seasons, basically, it's been up there, and it says, believe, believe, and the sign becomes very important to the community, and so Coach Lasso is going to give them a speech that I chopped up for our sermon. Would you take a look at how he infuses faith, hope, and community into fearful situations? I forgot one more tidbit of information they just lost the star player maybe the greatest player in the whole game his name in this show was called Zava and he just retired out of the blue and that's why they're afraid because what are we going to do without our star player lights camera action that's right okay well I'll see y'all on Monday hey okay coach what about Zava you, um he quit the team we didn't need Zav. Yeah? All we need to win are the fellas in this room right now. And all you fellas need to do is believe it. Oh! oh, 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 oh. That's the way to. No, 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 hold on. Hey, knock it off, okay? We're not doomed. No one is doomed. But bumper catch, yes, you're right. It is a sign. I agree. Yeah. Fact is, it's just a sign. Whoa! All right, guys, listen to me. Belief doesn't just happen because you hang something up on a wall. All right? It comes from in here, you know? And up here, down here. Only problem is we all got... So much junk floating through us, a lot of times we end up getting in our own way. You know, crap like envy or fear, shame. Now, you know what I want to mess around with? The belief that I matter, you know? Regardless of what I do or don't achieve. Or what about the belief of hope? Yeah, that's what I want to mess with. Believing that things can get better, that I can get better, that we will get better. Oh, man. 
believe in yourself, to believe in one another, man, that's, that's fundamental to being alive. And look, yo, hey, if you can do that, if each of you can truly do that, can't nobody rip that apart. See y'all Monday? Yes. Video clips are cheating because I just let him preach for two minutes. And you're all like, yeah, I get it. Thanks for giving my brain a break from you talking for two minutes. Coach Lasso, talking about believe, taking that interruption of fear about that loss of the player and infusing it with community, with faith, with hope. If he just said Jesus in there, it would have been a great sermon. Somewhere in there, just mentioned Jesus. But his antidote to fear, which he says explicitly, is togetherness and belief and hope. He mentions all three of the things that I see in Jesus' story. I think it's a good example of how he took an interruption of fear and he infused those things back into it. Good model for us of what Jesus is trying to do with the woman and with a little girl. Because fear is worry about the future being bad. And then worry is our way of trying to prevent bad things from happening. And unfortunately, you can't prevent bad things from happening. Faith is trust, not that things are going to be good, because there's no guarantee that things are going to be good. But faith is trust that you could get through it with Jesus and his people. That you're not going to be alone. That you're going to have someone to help you weather, to hold you up when times are hard. This is the faith that we talk about. The trust that Jesus will give you the power that you need to weather any storm and bring people alongside of you to help you get through well, come out the other side maybe even stronger. And so when Jesus has interruptions that are fear-based, he infuses faith, he infuses hope, he infuses community into those interruptions. That's what I think you can do for other people. And also all of these things are things that Jesus wants to do for you as well. What do we do? What does this passage encourage us to do when it comes, with, comes to disruptions and interruptions? In the middle of the crowds, which you are going to experience all the time, in the middle of the crowds, Jesus models for us how to be present to individual people. Just something that seems like it happens two or three times in this passage. First off, right away, Jesus returned. The crowds welcome him. A man named Jairus runs up to him and falls at his feet. We get Jairus' name, synagogue leader, which is why the bleeding woman was so afraid. I mean, here is a synagogue leader. He's going to be the one that enforces the rules about defilement and uncleanness. But yet the story mentions his name as one who is also at the feet of Jesus, begging for help in the midst of his fear. And Jesus sees him, and we know him by name. Again, in the middle of the crowds, Jesus is literally like, who's touching me? And Peter's like, it's you're literally in the middle of the most crowds that can be happening. There, more mass cannot be in this area at this time. And Jesus calls this woman in the middle of her trembling, and he says, someone, 
one person. I know, I think he knew. Like I said, I think he knew who it was. He's got a plan and a purpose. And after she explains herself, he calls her daughter. Daughter. Restores her back to her community. Jesus is present with the people in the middle of the crowds. One more time, he shows up. Mark actually gives this better picture of the crowd. So I went over to Mark chapter 5 for this story. But when Jesus showed up, there's a large commotion of people that are weeping and wailing loudly. The funeral procession has already started in this culture. People show up to cry and bring some food. And Jesus has to walk through. He enters through that crowd. He says, why are you making a commotion? She's just sleeping. They know she's dead. They laugh at him. They stop their crying to laugh at Jesus, which is a good contrast for us. And he takes the girl by the hand, right? He makes the crowd small and he brings his most trusted disciples and the mom and the dad. And he grabs the little girl by the hand. And Mark, he gives us the exact phrase that Jesus spoke in Aramaic, Talitha kum, little girl, get up. Right to her, directly to her, touching her hand, which you're not supposed to do to dead bodies, but Jesus is Jesus. He's able to see the individual through the crowd. Jesus is encouraging us to do the same thing. That's not even supernatural. Jesus is not even doing anything supernatural. He's just practicing noticing individuals around him. And I think that there is an encouragement for us to do that when it comes to disruption. Sometimes people can get lost in the crowds and in the busyness and we are unable to see people and Jesus sees them and he sees you and he encourages us to see others around us as well. Anyone can find, they can learn to find the faces of those who are suffering and sad and be present with them. And that's Jesus' encouragement to us in this story. I get to teach some sociology at Chico State, and this is one of the most famous American sociologists. His name is Charles Cooley. Not only is he that handsome, but his last name starts with cool in it. So that's, I mean, he's already at the top of the list. And he came up with a theory about how we become human beings, how we get socialized into functioning, producting members of society. And his theory amongst many of his theories, is called the looking glass self. And this is always confusing to my students because they don't know what a looking glass is. They're like, is it Mr. Peanut's monocle? And I'm like, no, it's not. It's a mirror. It's a mirror. And his theory is that you, re- you have a hard time seeing yourself. You really are seeing yourself through the perception of the people around you. Your mom, your dad, your grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, friends, girlfriends, boyfriends. These people around you become mirrors and they were reflecting you back to yourself. The second part of that theory is that then you perceive their judgments about you, good or bad. You perceive their, their thoughts about you. You're perceiving it. You might be incorrect. It doesn't matter if you're incorrect. Your perception of it for you is important. And then finally, you have some feelings based on what you perceive to be their thoughts about you. Primarily two feelings. Now I'm lecturing. They are shame or pride. When you see yourself in the mirror of the people around you, you will primarily experience shame 
or pride. And if it's pride, it encourages you to keep going in the direction that you're going and growing. And if it's shame, that should be, according to his theory, a detriment to get you to try to stop doing some of the things that you're doing. The problem with this theory and in our modern day is that we are feeling less and less seen all the time. This has become a very important concept for people around us. They want to be seen. And if this theory is correct, uh, this is being seen is wildly important for who we are as people and how we're growing. But in a world full of busyness and screens, we are getting less seen. Getting less seen. We're getting less notice. And, and seenness has to do with feeling known, feeling understood, feeling worthy of time, attention, and love, feeling appreciated. So we're just getting less seen. Our world is begging for it. The chaplains down in Texas at the Institute of Spiritual Health, they do hospital chaplaincy. They say they, they did a big survey in 2016, and they said one of the number one things that people are expressing that they need, they're feeling a lack of being seen in their situations, what they're going through, what they're doing, how they're handling things. It's important to be seen, and Jesus models for us seenness. He models for us being present to people inside the interruptions. He didn't come there to heal this bleeding woman or to heal that little girl who died. He came there to preach gospel to communities who need it. And yet in the midst of that, he sees sadness and suffering and he's present to it and he models that for us. See and be seen, especially for those who are suffering and sad and with that i think i'm done let's take some questions if you have them feel free to send them does unclean situation include menstruation yes not anymore not for christians but if you're jewish you're in trouble you got to go outside for a week don't touch anybody Christians, not the same, right? That, we don't believe that anymore. Um, we appreciate you going through that suffering for us, ladies. You're a blessing. That is not an unclean state. That is a blessed state now in Christ. Great question. Um, were the people who ran the morgue always unclean? Great question. There were some professions that remained in a perpetual state of uncleanness. And basically, part of your job was to say, as a parent, don't become that to your children. But also, in this society, it was the family's responsibility to take care of burial. And so, you would become unclean for seven days. And it was your primary responsibility as a son to make sure your family gets buried appropriately. Your mom and dad and grandparents and everyone and so you were unclean, and you had to do a bunch of stuff, maybe kill some animals and go to the temple and try to get unclean, but it usually lasted seven days. Good. Shepherds were generally considered unclean, which is why it's such a radical idea during Christmas that they get the first announcement of good news because they're always touching dead sheep and poop all the time, and so they were considered unclean all the time. 
about the statement? Another question about menstruation, and the answer is yes. Um, excellent. You guys are making a lot of good connections. I just noticed that the young girl is 12 years old and the woman had be, been bleeding for 12 years old. Is there any meaning to that? Yes! Great job! Yeah, that's an insight that doesn't fit our disruption theme. But 12 is a really important number for community. There were 12 tribes of Israel. There were 12 apostles. God originally creates a community called Israel with 12 tribes. Jesus is creating a new spiritual community with 12 apostles. 12-ness is about spiritual God's community. And so this story at a very deep level, not just healing some people, at a very deep level is God's willingness to heal and restore an unclean or dead spiritual community. This is promise of healing for those who feel isolated or disconnected from God or God's people or in this case, even for Israel itself, that God has come to revive a faith family and he is able to cure any illness that keeps people away from it. Anybody who feels spiritually dead or spiritually unclean, you cannot defile yourself out of this community anymore. Jesus can heal you with a touch. And so the 12 myths is about God coming and promising new Faith, family, that's what those 12s are about. Great question. Great question. Thank you so much. I got so many. You guys are doing great. I appreciate it. Here's my conclusion, and we're heading into some communion. We learn from Jesus an example about interruptions. You don't have to worry about people's human condition defiling you. You have the power. The power in you is greater than their power to defile or to harm or to make unholy. So there's no one beneath us that is undeserving of our time or attention based on these types of things. We meet fear with faith. We add to it hope and community. This is our antidote to any fear-based interruptions in our life. Infuse it with faith, hope, and community. And lastly... We can learn to be present with people who are going through these sad or suffering situations. We can learn to block out the busyness and chaos of the crowd and be present with individuals. And I think Jesus teaches us to do just that. And with that, would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for this story. Not only as a model for us, but as a word for us that we would be seen, that we would be healed, that we would be restored, that there's nothing that we can do that would make you love us any less or desire for us to not be here in the midst of your people. And as we feel and experience your call to us, your healing to us, you seeing us and being present with us, would you help us to model that for others around us, us who are desiring that very thing? To be touched, to be seen, to be included, to be loved, to have hope, to have their fears diminish as their faith increases. Help us to feel it. Help us to be people that help others walk that journey. And as we come now to a time of communion, 
to your bread and your cup, to your table, would it be a time where you meet us, where you see us, where you touch us in a way that encourages more faith, that encourages more hope, that encourages more connection. And we will give you praise and thanks and say these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Table Church, will you help me finish that prayer by saying the Lord's Prayer? Saying, saying, is it up there? Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. But deliver and deliver us from evil, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.